Chapter forty nine of the Giraffe Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Jones, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Giraffe Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter forty nine. Scenes seldom visited. Knowing that the longer they should be in reaching the next watering place, the weaker their cattle would become our travellers strove to perform more than half the distance in less than half the time on their first day's journey after leaving the crawl they went about twenty-five miles but on starting the next day they saw that not more than half that distance was likely to be accomplished and that their principal work would consist in plying the jambox towards noon they came upon a tract of country the greater portion of which had once been flooded with brackish water and was now slightly encrusted with salt the reflection of the sun's rays on this incrustation gave it the appearance of water, and, on seeing it, the cattle, horses, and dogs rushed forward, anticipating a grand pleasure in quenching their thirst. On discovering what it was, the animals gave out their various expressions of disappointment. The horses neighed, the oxen bellowed, and the dogs barked and howled. The constant mirage floated over the plain, magnifying and distorting the appearance of everything within view where the saline incrustations did not cover the ground there grew a short sour herbage browsed upon by blesbox wildebeests and several other species of antelopes these animals as well as some shunted trees at times appeared suspended in the air and magnified far beyond natural size high up in the air could be seen the reflection of animals that were many miles distant from the place they appeared to be occupying these optical illusions were the cause of much annoyance to the thirsty travellers, especially to their animals, unable to understand them. Excited with the hope of quenching their thirst, they were with much difficulty prevented from rushing about in pursuit of the phantom that was so terribly tantalizing them. The cattle had been a long time without salt, and had a strong desire to lick up the saline incrustation, that in some places covered the earth to an eighth of an inch in thickness this increased their thirst and caused them to hasten forward to the next deceptive show that spread itself before them in place of meeting water they only found that which strengthened the desire for it our travellers seemed to have reached a land where phantoms and realities were strangely commingled they saw spectral illusions of broad lakes with trees mirrored upon their placid surface a sun of dazzling brightness seemed shining from the bottom of an unfathomed sea and a forest appeared suspended in the air. But along with these fair fancies there were many unpleasant realities. For the first two or three hours after entering amid such scenes, they could not help feeling interested. In time, however, the interest died away as their vision became accustomed to the strange appearances. One yet awaited them, stranger and far more extraordinary than any yet witnessed. About three hours after the sun had passed the meridian, they arrived at a place that resembled a small island in the midst of an ocean. Water was rolling down upon them from every direction, and had their eyes not been so often deceived, they could easily have imagined that the dry earth upon which they stood was about to be instantly submerged. While contemplating this singular scene, their attention was called to another no less singular. It was that of a gigantic bird moving across the sky not in flight but walking with long strides they might have been alarmed but for their knowledge of what it was 
An ostrich somewhere on the Karoo was being reflected by the mirage, and magnified to ten times its natural size. On a former expedition, our hunters had seen much of the singular phenomena produced by the mirage. They had witnessed many, many spectacles, but the one upon which they were now gazing excited their admiration more than any they had ever encountered. The reflected ostrich was perfect in shape, and his stalk so natural that, but for what they knew, they might have believed that something as extraordinary as anything seen by John the Revelator had descended to the earth from another world. Such a sight, appearing in the sky that overhangs Hempstead Heath, would have converted all London to a belief in the prophecies of the Reverend Dr. Gumming. As they stood gazing upon it, a cloud came rolling up the heavens, carried along by a breeze that had commenced blowing from the west. By this the mirage was destroyed, and the vast spectral image suddenly disappeared. The phantom shapes were seen no more, and soon after the travellers saw before them some real ones that led them to believe they were approaching the limit of the Karoo. The ground was higher, more uneven, and covered by a more luxuriant vegetation. Water could be found at no great distance. The fact was deduced from the presence of some zebras and palas seen feeding near, as they knew that neither of those animals ever strays far from the neighborhood of a stream. Near what may be called the border of the Karoo, the hunters came across what to them was a prize of some value. It was an ostrich nest containing seventeen fresh eggs, which afforded the raw material for an excellent dinner. This was soon cooked and eaten, and our travelers continued their march. But Swartboy had a passion either for killing ostriches or procuring their feathers. Possibly the penchant might have been for both, but, be that as it may, he was unwilling to go away from the nest, even after the eggs had been extracted from it. Knowing that his masters intended to encamp by the first watering place they should meet, he determined to stay behind for an hour or two and rejoin the traveling party in the evening, and, as no one made objection, he did so. His prejudice in favor of poisoned arrows and against the use of firearms as weapons of offense had been gradually removed, and he had for some time past been induced to shoulder a double-barreled gun capable of carrying either bullets or shot. With this gun the bushman seated himself upon the edge of the ostrich's nest, and was left in this attitude by the others as they moved away from the spot. Just as the sun was setting, a dark grove of timber loomed up before their eyes, and on reaching it they discovered a stream of water. The impatient oxen would not allow their packs to be taken off till they had quenched their thirst, after which they went vigorously to work upon the rich herbage that grew upon the banks of the stream. It was full two hours before Swartboy made his appearance by the campfire. Its light illumined a set of feathers expanded into an expression that spoke of some grand satisfaction. He had evidently gained something by remaining behind. Success had attended his enterprise. In his hands were seen the long white plumes of an ostrich, the trophies of his hunter's skill, that even in Africa are not so easily obtained. His story was soon told. He had lain flat along the ground, close by the ostrich's nest, until the birds had returned. They had come back in company, and Swartboy had secured them both as a reward for his watchful patience. He had brought the plumes with him, not as a mere evidence of his triumph, but intended to be taken on to Graf Rennet. 
and there presented to his toddy. The bushman stated that he had seen a large flock of ostriches while waiting for the two he had killed. He had no doubt but what they could be found on the following day, and, as it was necessary that the cattle should have a little time to rest and recover themselves after the toils of the Karoo, an ostrich hunt was at once agreed upon and for that evening ostriches became the chief topic of conversation around the campfire. End of chapter 49 Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah